Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, this morning we are starting a new sermon series through the book of Proverbs. So grab your Bibles, and let's go over to Proverbs chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 527. Really, i got to do is flip straight to the middle of your Bible. You'll probably find Psalms, and then flip over to the right a little bit. You'll land in Proverbs. Um, th- we are really jumping back into a sermon series. Uh, we have done Proverbs twice before, once in the summer of 2015 and once in the summer of 2011. Um, but here's the thing, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is, is like a field of treasure. Um, you simply can't deplete it. We could spend forever in the book of Proverbs and never get um, to the bottom of, of the gold, of, of the good stuff in this chapter. And the reality is, with the amount of time we've spent in it, we have honestly barely tilled the surface. Uh, and so I'm excited about um, getting back into this study. I think uh, it's going to be uh, enriching uh, and helpful for us. Today, what I want to do is help set the stage for this study. Um, I want to help you engage it. We didn't produce a, a study book for um, this series like we did with James and like we will do in the fall. Um, so what I'm going to encourage you to do is get a, a journal, honestly, and, and uh, sit down daily. Uh, 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, chapter a day, sit down and um, grab a cup of coffee, slow down a little bit, um, and, and read, okay? Spend some time in it, uh, for real. Instead of just showing up on Sundays, I'm, I'm hoping Sundays are enriching and encouraging and strengthening. Um, but if you're really going to be transformed by this study, if you're really going to be able to enter into the wisdom this book is offering for us, you need to engage it yourself. Okay, you need to get out into the field and do a little digging on your own and allow the Spirit of God to show you some of its treasure, and, and He will. Okay? All right, so this morning we're going to be looking at the first seven verses. The first seven verses of chapter 1, Solomon tells us why he wrote the Proverbs, or why he collected them. He didn't write them all. Once he didn't write, he collected um, but, but why this book was given to us. So let's take a look at the first seven verses. I'm going to read out loud. You follow along. Um, starting in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so um, verse 1 kind of starts off telling us uh, where this is coming from, right? It says the Proverbs of Solomon. Um, Solomon didn't write them all. He wrote the majority of them, um, but it was he began this collection. We're not sure if he was the one who finalized it, um, but Solomon put this together. And, and specifically, these verses open up chapters 1 through 9. Chapters 1 through 9 uh, are, are clearly written to, to Solomon's children. And then starting in verse 10 through, or chapter 10 through 31, you really move into kind of the broader collection of Proverbs. Um, some of them, the whole chapter, the whole chapter is centered around a single idea, and all the Proverbs kind of dig into it, like Proverbs 31, uh, which is all about uh, the godly woman. Um, other Proverbs really are just like a hodgepodge of, of related ideas, and, and, and part of the digging, part of the discovering 
is finding that, that there are, in fact, you'll, you'll read two Proverbs next to each other. You'll be like, what relationship do they have? Oh, that relationship. It's one of those things where you start discovering things in, in digging in. Now, here's the thing with Proverbs. Proverbs don't seem very familiar to us, especially a study of Proverbs. Um, but Proverbs are very common. Every culture has them. Um, every culture has had them, and including ours today, right? Proverbs are ways of expressing um, a common wisdom or explore a, a moral law uh, that affects all of us, right? It is, it is generally simply stated uh, in a way that is memorable, and it often has a metaphor or a symbol buried in it, some, some sort of symbolic language that requires us to, to kind of wrestle with it a little bit, right? It requires us to, to think about it and, and move into re- reflection to really get its meaning, okay? Now, here's the thing. Proverbs give insight into... Um, the wisdom of the human condition, um, and the human experience. So in other words, a proverb helps us understand what's happening around us and how we operate within it. You guys need towels? <laughs> Sorry, I know I'm supposed to ignore these things, not, not put a spotlight on it like I'm doing right now. This is one of the reasons, honestly, I was so thankful when we tore up the old carpet, we found these hardwood floors. Um, No harm, no foul. All right. um, All right. Proverbs, right? That's where we're at, talking about Proverbs. All right. So uh, let me give you an example, uh, uh, a proverb that is familiar to us in our culture, in our time. Uh, The pen is mightier than the sword. I'm sure you've heard of that one, right? Uh, Like most Proverbs, somebody wrote it, right? Don't, Don't look at that yet. Okay, stick with me for a minute. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Most Proverbs, somebody wrote it. We just forgot who wrote it. It, it becomes so commonplace, so repeated, that it just becomes common wisdom, right? That the pen is mightier than the sword. None of us really know that Edward Bulwer-Lytton wrote it, right? I didn't know that until I Googled it, right? Um, but it expresses a powerful idea that, that is really relevant in our culture um, and, 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 and expresses something insightful into the human condition, right? And, and that proverb gets repeated and, in fact, reiterated in special ways. That's where the picture comes in. Um, this is like a more modern rendition of a, a visual of this, right? Uh, yesterday, today, uh, tomorrow. It's hard to see, but you have a solid pencil, a broken pencil, and then two sharpened pencils, right? The pen is mightier than the sword. It is, it is a powerfully insightful proverb that is culturally contextualized, but universally applicable. Culturally contextualized, but universally applicable. How is this culturally contextualized? Well, the pen is mightier than the sword assumes that you have a literate society. Not all societies are literate, right? It is, it is something unique to the Western society, and specifically our development of the free press, right? Which is something that, that hasn't been true in, in many societies or cultures throughout history, right? The pen is mightier than the sword, right? What that means is a well-articulated thought, clearly and powerfully expressed, has more power than political violence, political force, personal violence, personal force. In the end, if you really want to change culture, and not just for a moment, but you really want to change culture, the pen is mightier than the sword. Ideas have a greater ability to transform culture than raw power or political force or, or, or destructive personal violence, 
right? It is, it is very relevant to us, right, in the Western culture, right? We think of um, the massacre that took place in 2015 with Charlie Hebdo in France. Um, we, we think of the violence that occurred just recently in our own country, in Maryland, with, with um, the Capital Gazette and um, the violence there, right? People understand the power of the pen and often feel very threatened by it and, in fact, think they can silence the power of the pen by killing the people who are using it. Um, or, or silencing it. But, but here's the thing, you break that pencil, two more come out of it because the pen is mightier than the sword. Ideas clearly communicated have more power than violence used to try to silence them, right? So culturally contextualized, universally applicable, right? That's a truth that is true in, in all cultures, which is why even cultures that don't foster free press uh, do their best to protect themselves from it because they know even if they try to control, they have media, uh, a government-controlled media absolutely trying to silence all outside influences. They're terrified of the internet. They're terrified of, of you know, back in the 70s, of, of the radio, of, of the ability, because they know that once these ideas get planted in people's minds, there's more power in a, in a well-thought, articulated idea than there is in political or, or physical power, right? So culturally, contextualized, universally applicable. What that means is when we're dealing with proverbs coming from other cultures, the challenge for us is to bridge the cultural gap to get to the application. Does that make sense? So like if I'm reading proverbs that come from an agrarian society, they may be working with um, planting and, and sowing and, and tilling. Or if they're a, a nomadic society, we may be getting um, uh, illustrations coming from cattle and, and raising livestock. If they are a culture near the sea, they may be seafaring or, or ocean, right? That The culture is the framework that, that gives them their visuals, their symbols, their metaphors to communicate a universal idea. So if I'm going to gain insight into the proverb, the challenge for me is to bridge the cultural gap in order to understand the relevant human experience in it. Right? And this is true of every human culture. Every human culture has, has proverbs, and, and we see that their proverbs reflect their culture. Right? Let me just give you a few examples. This one is from Africa. Until the lion be- learns to write, every story will glorify the hunter. I've never hunted a lion, right? Um, but, but we understand what it's saying, right? right? Very similar. We, we in our culture might say something like, history is written by the victors, right? Um, how about this one? This is a Chinese proverb. A man who chases two rabbits catches neither. Good leadership insight. I've never chased a rabbit. I've tried to get rid of rabbits. I haven't chased them. Um, Irish proverb, close to my heart, being of Irish roots. A man takes a drink, a drink takes a drink, and a drink takes a man. Good advice. <laughs> Ethiopian proverb, no matter how many times you wash a goat, it still smells like a goat. I have never owned a goat, and I've definitely never tried to wash a goat, but I get it, right? There's something very, very applicable here. I've tried to wash a goat, metaphorically, and it still smells like a goat, right? Kenyan proverb, if you think you're too small to make a difference, you haven't spent the night with a mosquito, right? Something about persistent annoyance that actually accomplishes. So here's the thing. In each one of these, there's a cultural gap, right? Now, the mosquito thing, all of us have spent the night with a mosquito more than likely, even if we haven't slept outside with, without netting. Um, we, we haven't washed a goat. We haven't, but, but we can figure out what they're saying by sitting in it and considering it. There is a universal 
human truth. They are short, culturally expressed, universal to human experience, right? And here's the thing. As we study the Bible, we're studying ancient Near Eastern um, uh, proverbial wisdom, right? And, and, and as a result, there are going to be some cultural challenges. There are some contexts. We're going to be reading some of these Proverbs, and you're going to be like, I don't get it, right? And some of them, honestly, the more I wrestle with, I still don't get. The man with a maid is like a serpent on a rock. I don't get it, right? I have wrestled. I still can't preach that because I have no idea what it's saying. Um, but, but they're worth wrestling with, and we don't want to allow the cultural gap to put us off from the truth that is discovered in them. Because here's the thing, these Proverbs are not ordinary Proverbs. The Proverbs we're studying are not just general insight to the human condition. They are supernatural insight into our condition. These Proverbs were given to us by the Spirit of God through Solomon, who happened to be supernaturally gifted in wisdom. Solomon was the wisest man to walk the face of the earth, because the Spirit of God gifted him with wisdom, and then through that gift has gifted to us this book of wisdom, right? And so we need to wrestle with this and recognize its value. So as a new believer, um, brand new believer, I was 17, became a believer, um, man, I devoured the Bible. Uh, I just, I couldn't, I read it. Uh, first time in my life, um, I sat down, read it from cover to cover in, in like three months, um, and, and in that first read-through, there are some things that, you know, like, like there are whole sections that I read that I don't remember reading. You know what I'm saying? You come back to them later, you're like, I wonder if you even read that. I, you read it and you discover it's like, I, but there were a few moments in that first read-through that kind of stopped me in my tracks, and I remember it. And this is one of them, 1 Kings chapter 3. And you don't need to flip there, but, but you can look at it later. 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon has just been coronated king. He's the son of David. David is the, the you know, the greatest king in Israel's history, right? He's the guy that unified the kingdom. He is, he is the guy that establishes borders. He is the guy who, who loved God with all of his heart, soul, and mind. Even though he was a tragically flawed human figure, he became this, this epically great king of Israel. And here comes Solomon trying to fill his shoes, and Solomon is, is fresh after his coronation, and God shows up to him and says, Solomon, what do you want from me? I'm here. What do you want from me? As a young man who has just stepped into this established kingdom, stepped into the glory uh, that, that his father has, has, has established into these secure borders, into this, this period, um, Solomon's response is what grabbed me, and this is why I remember it. Solomon said, um, oh Lord, I am a child. Who am I to lead this great people? Like there is this realization that he's not just stepping into the big shoes of his father. He's not just stepping into the big reputation of his father. He is stepping into this position of tremendous responsibility because his every decision will impact not just his life, but the life of the entire nation. His, the, the ripple effects of his decisions will either bring blessing or harm to this entire generation of the Hebrew people. And he looks at that responsibility, he looks at that scope of influence, and his initial response is, I am but a child. Who am I to lead this great people? And he has one request. Will you give me wisdom? Will you give me wisdom? And God's response is, 
and you've asked well. You could have asked for power, right? A lot of young men lusting for power, the defeat of their enemies, the expansion of their borders. You could have asked for fame. A lot of young men are looking for a name that resounds, that people, uh, you know, you could have said, make me a more famous king than my father. Give me a greater kingdom than my father. Give me a greater glory than my father. Allow the entire nation to prosper greater than it did under my father. But you didn't ask for any of these things. You didn't ask for great wealth, power, fame, or influence. You asked for wisdom, and because you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you wisdom, and I'm going to give you everything else with it. That struck me as a 17-year-old. Now, I wasn't a king, and thank God I wasn't leading anyone at that point in my life. Um, But I knew this. I mean, honestly, as a brand-new believer, I didn't even know how to put one foot in front of the other. Like, I was a brand-new believer, and, 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 and the paradigm shift that occurred in my life there was suddenly hope where there was no hope. I had a vision for life that I had never had before coming out of my background, and I was looking forward to, like, man, the gospel promises me such great things. I have no idea how to get them. How do I build that life? How do I come out of where I was but go to where you say I can be? How can I, how can I, and I remember praying this prayer, Lord, I'm a child. Give me wisdom. Above all, give me wisdom. And as I continued reading and studying the writings of Solomon, I found that this actually was reiterated throughout his life, that he came back and, in fact, emphasized how important this was. Um, in Proverbs 4, 7 through 9, I'll put this on the screen, um, Solomon says this, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. I love his absurdly simple statements. You're like, wait, okay, there's got to be something more to this because that seems so obvious. Uh, in in, in The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Whatever you get, get insight. Whatever you're pursuing, first get insight. Whatever it is you want, first get wisdom. What is it it that's driving you? First get wisdom. In all of your getting, get wisdom first, right? Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. See, what this told me, and this is what I kind of intuitively picked up when I read 1 Kings 3 and as I continued to study, was this, that you don't get all the good things in life by pursuing the good things in life. You don't get success by pursuing success. Not not true success. You you don't get um, prosperity by by pursuing prosperity. You, You don't get a genuine good name by pursuing fame. You don't get those things by pursuing those things. Those things are the byproduct. Pursue wisdom. And these other things will be added to you. Pursue wisdom. Pursue wisdom, and you'll find a good name. Pursue wisdom, and you will find prosperity. Pursue wisdom, and you will find um, uh, a thriving family. Pursue wisdom. Pursue wisdom. Solomon collected the verses, or these proverbs, in this book to equip his children and his nation and us to pursue wisdom. That's why this book was given to us, that we might pursue wisdom, that in all of our getting, we would first get wisdom. In all of our pursuing, we would first pursue wisdom. We take a look at verses 1 through 6. In fact, he makes this clear. Each of these uh, statements begins with to, right? To do, to do. And each of those is a purpose statement. Solomon's saying, look, I... 
I gathered these things to do these things. Take a look at verses 2 through 6, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking them. I just want to read through them. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, to let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Solomon collected these that we might grow in wisdom and all of her attributes. Because wisdom isn't a single entity. Wisdom is a thing that is made up of, of multiple things, right? And they're all kind of delineated right here. Knowledge and, and prudence and discretion and, 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 and insight, right? These are all different elements that come together. You have to grow in these discrete things to grow in wisdom. Now, when we preached through the book of Proverbs in 2015, I, I opened up the series with these same seven verses. And in that sermon, I focused on the attributes of wisdom, wisdom and all of her sisters, okay? And, and, and I'm not going to take the time to unpack that. There's way too much here. We're going we're gonna to go a different direction this morning, but I just wanted to let you know that that is available. If you want to go on our website to the Proverbs 2015 series, um, that first sermon will walk you through those individual pieces to help you explore the elements that come together to make up wisdom. That's a resource to you if you, if you want to access it. This morning, what I want to do is I want to focus... On, on specifically um, um, the, the categories of people that are described here and, and why wisdom is so essential. Um, all three, there are three categories of people introduced in these first seven verses. And, and they will come up over and over and over again through the book of Proverbs. And, and they are the wise, the simple, and the fool, right? In verse 5, let the wise hear and increase in learning. In verse 4, to give prudence to the simple... And then in verse 7, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Those three categories of people, everybody falls into one of those three categories. And uh, they are the same categories that will come up over and over and over through the book of Proverbs. Here's the quick takeaway. You want to be wise, you don't want to be a fool. Steve, that's incredibly insightful. All right, stick with me, okay? That's, you want to be in the wise group, right? The group that's wise. You don't want to be in the fool group, Right? Let me explain why. Good things come to the wise, and horrible things come to the fool. When you read through the book of Proverbs, you see this over and over and over again. Genuine fullness of life, flourishing of life, prosperity of life comes to the wise. Shame, disgrace, and ruin come to the fool. The wise take the straightest path to blessing. Now, it's not always a perfectly straight path because the wise are still living in a broken world, living and doing, you know, having to deal with broken things, but they take the shortest path, right, between themselves and the fullness of life and blessing. Fools, man, they just expand their suffering, right? They constantly get off on rabbit trails of, of personal pain, and they increase their own pain right? The wise take the shortest distance between them and blessing. They take the shortest distance between them and joy and success, between them and a good reputation, them and the fullness and experience of genuine love. So here's the thing, man. The wise, they know when to speak, to confront or to give life, and they know when to stay silent because their words will bring harm or will do no good. They know, when to they know how and when to invest their lives, because we're all investing our lives. 
They know how to invest their lives for the greatest return of blessing for themselves and for those that they love. They are a blessing to themselves. They are a blessing to their families. They are a blessing to their communities. They are a blessing to their workplaces. You want to be wise. And honestly, you want to be around people who are wise. You want to be in a community of wisdom. You really do. Because wise people make good choices. Wise people take the shortest path between them and the fullness and the goodness and the blessing of life. They know how to navigate the negative to get to the good. They know how to avoid expanding and, and increasing their own and, and the pain of others. They, they are a blessing. The fool, on the other hand, always thinks he knows the best shortcut to get to that blessing. The fool always takes a look at what they want and where they are and thinks they know the absolute best way to get there. They are confident in their own opinions and arrogant in their own ways. Now, here's the thing with a fool. In the same way that wisdom is made up of all of its many attributes, a fool is made up of many, all of his many attributes. And you'll see some other people mentioned in the book of Proverbs that are categories of the fool or, or just expressions of the fool, right? At times, you'll read about the sluggard. Well, the sluggard is a fool, right? Somebody who should be lazy when they should be at work or are at work when they should be at rest, The sluggard invests their energy into the wrong things and avoids investing it into the right things, right? He's a fool, right? You're going to read about the the troublemaker, the one who is quick to anger and always looking for a fight. He's a fool. You're going to read about the scoffer, the one who sits in the seat of scoffing, the one who becomes comfortable in tearing people and things down. They don't necessarily produce anything on their own. Often that's why they're in a seat of the scoffer. They're not doing anything. They're not creating anything. They're not moving anywhere. They're simply sitting back and criticizing and critiquing everybody else. They get comfortable in that seat. That guy's a fool. You're going to read about the liar. You're going to read about the stupid. You're going to read about, and you're like, dude, that just sounds kind of harsh. Why is Solomon so harsh? Because part of what happens with a proverb is they distill the truth down, right? He's not trying to be polite. He's trying to be blunt. And in his bluntness, sometimes it's offensive and it hurts, but that's okay because honestly, if I'm being a fool, I absolutely need to know. And if you're being a fool, you need to know because being a fool always ends in destruction. For all of their confidence, fools ultimately end up disappointed with the outcome of their choices. A fool will in the end taste regret. A fool in the end will be covered in shame because everything they invested in, everything they thought was worth the energy and the effort didn't give them what they thought would give them. He mistakes short-term success for long-term blessing. Right? He looks at a mountain, a life choice, and he says, I can get to that top of the mountain. I can get to that glory. I can get to that prosperity. I can get there, and I can get there my way. And they begin the journey up the mountain, and they make good progress. They have good traction. They're gaining success, and they mistake short-term success for long-term blessing because in their foolishness and in their arrogance, they're not asking whether or not they're climbing the right mountain. Even if they get to the top, they will, in the end, be disappointed by their choices. And they will, in the end, be covered in the shame of their foolishness. 
He mistakes short-term success for long-term blessing and it puffs him up in his arrogance and his pride. He brings shame on his own head. And he brings shame on his family. And he brings shame on his community. And he disappoints and puts to shame those that have trusted him. You guys, you don't want to be the fool. You want to be the wise. Right? We want to be the wise. The problem is this. We don't know how. None of us start out wise, right? None of us start wise and it's like, okay, hey, let's just keep the course, y'all, right? Just keep doing those wise things you already know how to do, right? That's not how it works, right? We don't start wise. Wisdom is foreign to us. It is, it is a foreign path that seems non-intuitive, often to the choices we want to make. But here's the good news. There's a third category. Because if it was just wise and fools, we'd all be fools. And we would be doomed to be covered in the shame and disappointment of our choices. But there is a third category, and that's the simple. The simple can act a lot like a fool. They can make the same choices. They can say the same stupid things. They can stumble over their own feet. They can go down the wrong path. The difference, though, is that the simple haven't been hardened in their foolishness, they can still be corrected. The simple are often called youth, right? And here's the thing, youth doesn't refer to just a numerical age, right? You can be 60 or 70-year-olds this morning and be a youth, and praise God you can Because what he's saying is this is somebody who's naive, somebody who is ignorant and hasn't learned what they need to learn yet, but they can still learn it. They can still gain the knowledge they need. They can still grow in the insight they need. They can still grow in the discretion they need. They can still grow in the prudence they need to become wise. Praise God that there is a category as simple. Ultimately, the only difference between the simple and the fool is that the simple is correctable and the fool is not. The fool is absolutely convinced that their way is the best. The fool is absolutely convinced that their short-term success promises long-term blessing and they will not respond. Here's what I've learned. As I have prayed um, this prayer over the years, I told you I prayed this prayer when I was 17, and it was a significant moment for me. I remember it. You know, I'm 49. That was a lot of years ago, and I remember that. Um, I had to pray it over and over and over and over since, because life keeps showing me that I don't have what it takes to navigate it. There are, I keep having to do things I've never done before. I keep having to navigate problems I've never faced before. I keep having to, to um, make choices I've never made before. And the consequences are significant, not just for me, but for those that I love and for those that I influence. And I praise God that there is grace for the simple that I can at the end of the day say, I don't have to be wise as long as I'm simple. Because there's hope for the simple. God can work with the simple. God will change the simple. The simple can still become wise. It's not an insult to be called simple, and it's not, it's not an insult to be called ignorant, and it is not an insult to be called uh, a youth if you're old. You, the problem is when you start thinking you have it all figured out. 
The problem is when you start thinking, man, I got this. I got all the answers. I know all the paths. If everyone just asked me, everyone would be straightened out because I'm right all the time. You're a fool. Wisdom requires something for us to be simple. And that's because this, you guys, remember in the book of James, we talked a lot, a lot about this concept we called worldliness. Worldliness is our inclination to create systems of life apart from the God who creates life. Worldliness is our inclination to try to get the blessings of God apart from the God who gives those blessings. Worldliness is my desire to fulfill the, the Genesis 3 sin. I will be like God. I will establish my own glory, create my own security, mark the boundaries of my own life. I will do it in my time, on my way. Uh, I, 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 not God, I, will lead my life. And, and every once in a while I'll ask God for help. But I got this. That's worldliness, the natural inclination of our hearts to try to compete with God instead of humbly depend on God. Because we have that current, what that means is by nature we will be fools. If God's grace does not intervene, water running down the mountain always runs to the same ravines because they're the lowest point in the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance in your life is worldliness. Your desire to do life apart from God because you desperately hate absolute dependence on God. It feels like humiliation. Humility always feels foreign to somebody who's pride. It feels like humiliation. It feels like weakness. It feels like surrendering my dreams to have to say God's dreams are, are greater than, right? We, we want to be like God. The fool is set in his way because he's convinced that his worldliness will actually take him to life. The fool is, is, is doomed in his foolishness because he's not correctable. He actually believes that his, he can be like God, that he can mark the boundaries of his own glory, establish his own security, create his own, his own um, significance. But the simple can change and grow if they will respond to one simple but powerful concept found in verse 7. What is that? Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You're going to find this idea repeated a number of times throughout the book of Proverbs. Sometimes it's the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Sometimes it's the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. And there is a slight distinction. I'm not going to get into it this morning. The part I want to focus on is this, the beginning. What that means is if your first step isn't toward the fear of the Lord, you're moving in the wrong direction. If your first step isn't toward the fear of the Lord, you're climbing the wrong mountain. The beginning the first step, the, the step that sets your path for every other step must be toward the fear of the Lord, not toward success, not toward prosperity, not toward relational fulfillment, not toward becoming a great father or mother, not toward any of these other good things we crave in our lives. Our first step must be toward the fear of the Lord, otherwise we've taken the wrong step. If your first step wasn't toward the beginning of the fear of the Lord, you haven't even started on the path toward wisdom yet. Your greatest problem isn't a lack of knowledge. Your greatest problem is not a lack of experience. Your greatest problem isn't a lack of respect or a lack of prosperity. Your greatest problem is a lack of humility. 
the first step toward wisdom must be a step of humility. This is the antidote to our worldliness. The fear of the Lord is the antidote to our worldliness, to the drug of our worldliness, the drug that clouds our senses and, and locks us away from, uh, 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 from wisdom, that puts us into a, a, a drug-induced, fueled uh, foolishness that believes we can, in fact, find the fullness of God apart from the God who gives it uh, our path of worldliness. The fear of the Lord is what sobers us up. The fear of the Lord is what gives us clarity. The fear of the Lord is what allows us to begin this path of humility. It's the antidote to our worldliness. Now, we may get hung up on it a little bit because of the way it's phrased. The word fear throws us off, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord because that doesn't sound so much like what we're used to hearing. When we read through the New Testament, we read about love, right? That God has loved me. And because God has loved me, I learn to love him in response. And, and, and as I learn to love God in response, I learn to love others even as I am loved. That, that is the, the, the dynamic of the gospel, right? The beautiful power of love. How does fear fit into love? Because doesn't, doesn't love remove all fear? Yes, unhealthy fear. The fear that we're talking about here is not the unhealthy fear of being rejected, that God might like me one day and like me less the next, that he might like me well when I perform or like me less when I don't, or, or that he's capricious, that one day he values one thing and one day he values the next. So I'm kind of afraid all the time that, that well, Adam, I'm just not sure which God I'm going to get today. That, that's not the kind of fear we're talking about. When Solomon talks about the fear of the Lord, what he's talking about is the utter humility that grows in the presence of a sovereign God. When I come into the presence of God as a created being, into the presence of the Creator, when I come in as somebody who, who thought I can be like God, and I'm actually coming into the presence of the one who is God, when I come into the presence of God, when I have so much confidence in my own power, in my own intellect, in my own abilities, and I come into the presence of God who is unlimited in His power, He can speak things into existence or speak absolute brokenness. I mean, He, he has power to give life and remove it. When I come into the presence of that God, I will feel fear. Not a trembling fear of, 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 I'm not sure I can trust your character, but, but a humble fear of one who was created coming into the presence of the one who created him. A sobering fear that recognizes that I was pretending to be him. And he's a lot bigger than I am, and a lot more powerful, and a lot scarier, because I'm not him. He knows everything. He can do everything. He, he is the one that writes the script of human history. I can't even write my own script for my own life. And he's the one who begins it and brings it to its consummation, who works through every small story to tell the big story of a, of a God who redeems and restores. And I was impersonating him and pretending to be him. The fear of the Lord is very simply the proper response of mortal coming into the presence of immortality, of one who has no glory coming into the presence of one of infinite glory, the one who comes in with only pretended power into the presence who has all power, 
The fear of the Lord is a humble response to coming into the presence of God. The fear of the Lord acknowledges God is God and I am not. That is the antidote to your worldliness. The fear of the Lord recognizes I am not God and I'm a really bad impersonator. I cannot mark the boundaries of my own glory. I cannot establish my own security. I cannot mark out the paths of my own way. I cannot do it in my way on my time because I am not God and I cannot be like God in that way. I must be humbly dependent on God because that's exactly what I was created to do and exactly what I was created to be. I am not the creator. I am the created his ways are better than mine, and in blessing doesn't come from my hand, but from his. The fear of the Lord, very simply, is sanity. It is seeing myself correctly in the presence of a God who I've learned to see correctly. It is not a capricious fear, it is a humble fear that acknowledges awe and respect and worship and praise and trust. The fear of the Lord is a component of love because it very simply acknowledges we're not equal. This is not an equal love. I am loved far more than I love and you have sacrificed far more than I ever could. I am the recipient, not the initiator. The fear of the Lord. You guys, it's Solomon's way of calling us to humility. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Our first step toward wisdom must be a step toward humility. To acknowledging God, you're God and I'm not. Your plan is better than my plan. Your will is stronger than my will. Your way is, is infinitely better than my way. And the blessings you bring are infinitely better than any blessings I could dream for myself. See, once we start there, Every other step is set by that trajectory. I'm no longer competing with God. I'm relying on God. I'm no longer trying to establish my glory. I'm relying on His glory. I'm no longer trying to, to prove myself through my significance or my prosperity or my success. I am relying on the God who gives prosperity and significance and success. That's why it has to be the first step. It sets the trajectory of every other step that follows. And if we don't start there, we will not end where we want to end. We haven't taken the first step of wisdom until we've taken our first step of humility. Doesn't matter how much we know, doesn't matter how moral our behavior is, doesn't matter how religious our reputation is. If we haven't started on the path of humility, we have not yet started on the path of wisdom. So, in all of your getting, in all of your pursuing, in all of your dreaming, in all of your working, get wisdom first. In all of your dreams for prosperity or for success or for the thriving and flourishing of your family, first get humility. Before you seek to establish or to solve or to build or to grow, first seek humility. The book of Proverbs is an invitation into this path of life that is the antidote to the worldliness that will in the end betray us and leave us covered in shame. So let me give you three things I want to I I equip you with as you're engaging the book of Proverbs. Because we want to be the wise. We don't want to be the fool. Which means we've got to admit we're the simple. And praise God, there's grace for the simple. 
because we can act like fools, we can behave like fools, but there is grace for repentance and change. God can give us the gift of change uh, through humility. And so here's three ways that I think God is going to work through this book for us. First of all, when you're engaging the book of Proverbs, it is better to go deep than wide. It is better to go slow than fast. All right, so this genre, this type of writing requires a slow and careful pace. If you read through the history, books of the Old Testament, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, man, you can read all that in a day. And then go back and read it another day. Uh, history reads very fast, and, and, and there's a lot that you can glean by going back and, and being more careful. But the reality is what you're trying to do is get the scope and series of events in the story. Right? The book of Proverbs doesn't read like that. The book of Proverbs isn't this smooth superhighway that is designed for speed. So if you read the entire book of Proverbs in a day, man, that's kind of like, I don't know, uh, driving around in Missouri, right? Potholes everywhere, right? I mean, it's like, it's, like, it's like driving over a series of speed bumps at 60 miles an hour, right? That is not good for you. It is not good for your suspension, and you will not have a good day right? You're not going to be better off at the end, right? Proverbs are like speed bumps. They are designed to slow you down. It is better to go deep than wide. It is better to go slow than fast, which is why I encourage you um, to journal, right? Journaling, you know, like, ah, I don't journal, man. I'm not a hipster or a millennial. You don't have to be. Here's journaling. You know what journaling is? It's slowed down thinking, When you write, it forces you to slow down and actually put your thoughts into words, and often you discover what you think by writing out your thoughts. Writing is an incredibly powerful way of helping you not just express your thoughts, but form your thoughts. That's the power of journaling. Not that you're going to produce something to share with somebody, not that, you know, something may come out of that eventually, but the power of journaling is it helps you actually discover what you think or what you think you think. Because by forcing you to slow down and put it into words, it forces you to actually think about what you're thinking. Um, And I do recommend that you don't read more than a chapter a day. And even in a chapter a day, I recommend that while you're reading that chapter, you find one proverb that really grips your heart, that the Spirit of God can work deeply into you to enlighten you or to challenge you or, or to do something in you. Find one proverb to journal about in the midst of all the proverbs of that chapter. Okay? Go deep, not wide. Go slow, not fast book of Proverbs rewards careful digging. Secondly, look for principles, not promises. Look for principles, not promises. We get messed up a little bit when we approach Proverbs like we do, say, the book of Romans or or Jesus' words in the New Testament. The book of Romans is full of promises, right? Jesus' words in the New Testament are full of promises, and and they're promises that are good for our soul that we should grab onto. The book of of Proverbs is not a book of promises. It is a book of, of principles. Principles can't be claimed as promises. They're all true. When you get out to the biggest picture, Right, when you step out to the greatest distance, let me give you an example. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. That's a great proverb. That's a great, great reason to dig in and become skillful in things that we're passionate about, that we're working on, to be not just productive, but skillful in our productivity, to actually hone in on our skills, because he who is skillful will stand before kings. Now, if I take that as a promise... I'm going to be like, well, I want to stand before a king. I don't even know where there is one anymore, but I want to do that, right? So I'm going to be skillful because I want to stand before a king. 
And then it's going to be like, God, where's my king? I haven't, where, if it take it as a promise, we're not, we're not going to see its fulfillment. It's a principle. Now, another way this plays out, you guys, are there skillful people that go unnoticed? Even though the book of Proverbs says, if, if you grow in skill, you'll stand before kings and not obscure people. Are there super skilled people who are never recognized? Or maybe even not recognized until after they're dead. And then someone discovers and they're like, holy cow, this guy was incredible. He was so skillful. He doesn't get to stand for a king. He's dead. Right? Does that mean it's not true? No. What it means is that principles are always true when you get out to the farthest view of the story. Right? When it says that liars will be exposed and entrapped by their lies. That's always true. When you get out to the farthest view of the story right? Fools, remember, fools mistake short-term success for long-term blessing, right? Fools also mistake short-term failure for long-term failure. A fool might say, man, I'm, I'm working really, really hard to be skilled, and I'm, I'm not being recognized. I don't trust that this is true, so I'm going to take a shortcut. I'm, I'm, I'm going to find some other way to get where I want to go because it's not giving me, like, I worked really, really hard right? A lot of Proverbs about the value of hard work. I worked really, really hard. I didn't prosper. So I'm going to stop working hard and I'm going to start cheating hard because that's the way to success. I see it happening all around me, right? When you get out to the farthest view, Proverbs are always true. The liar will always be exposed in his lie and covered in shame. And the one who stands in integrity will always be established and covered in dignity, always. But we're talking about God's view of story, not mine which means that during my lifetime, there are times I simply have to trust in faith that certain things are true. They're principles, not promises. They are things that are always at work and always true, but they're not things that we can necessarily say, this has to be true for this event. What that does is it gives you endurance in your faithfulness. Because there are some things you just need to keep working on and be faithful. And in fact, there are Proverbs about that. Being faithful even when the results don't come immediately or in the ways you, you, you desperately want them to come immediately. All right, so look at principles, not promises. Thirdly, remember that uh, behavior matters, but motivation matters more. Remember that behavior matters, but motivation matters more. Here's the danger with the book of Proverbs. Proverbs focuses a lot on what I do or don't do. And as a result, what it can do is, is, is it can give me a checklist if I read it improperly or engage it, a checklist of self-improvement. Well, these are the ways I need to improve my behavior. These are the ways I need to stop doing these things so I can become a better person. And and what it does is it kind of feeds this this worldly idea that God wants us to have our own personal self-salvation project. It's up to me to save myself. It's up to me to make myself better. It's up to me to improve myself for God. I've got my little checklist of things to do or things not to do, things to start doing and stop doing, right? And if we read Proverbs incorrectly, what we're going to end up with is is actually going to undercut the long-term benefit of it, right? You have to remember that the book of Proverbs is uncovering moral laws in the universe. There are moral laws in the universe just like there are physical laws, right? If you jump off a cliff, you will fall because there's a physical law of gravity. There's a moral law as well. Those who live by deception will be exposed and entrapped by their deception, and they will in the end be covered with the shame of their deception. It's a moral law of the universe that takes a lot longer to unfold, but it will absolutely be true, right? If you're honest, you will earn a good name and gain favor. If you hold your tongue, you'll do less damage and be seen in a better light. See, these are all behavioral things, and behavior matters, but motivation matters more. 
See, the Proverbs weren't given to us to create a checklist of self-improvement. They were given to us that we might come to see and recognize behavioral patterns that are the natural outgrowth of wisdom versus behavioral patterns that are the outgrowth of foolishness, and we can move toward wisdom. But the foundation is always the same. What is the first step toward wisdom? Always. The fear of the Lord. The first step in in wisdom is not holding your tongue. The first step in wisdom is not working hard. The first step in wisdom is, is not, is not um, um, doing good things and stopping doing bad things, right? That's not the first step. The first step must be fear of the Lord. It is humility, motivation of humility, a response to God's love, a response that says, God, you are God and I am not. You love me more than I love myself. I trust you more than I trust myself. That motivation will equip you then to move into the behaviors of wisdom, without them themselves becoming an ensnaring trap that keeps us from experiencing the transforming power of grace. Behavior matters. Motivation matters more. All right, you guys, I really am praying that this will be a transformative study for us, that as we engage the book of Proverbs, we will be people that grow in wisdom, (laughs) that grow in the humility that allows us to admit that we're simple um, when we are and allows us to grow in the wisdom that leads us into the fullness and flourishing of life individually but also corporately together as a body. Let me pray for us. We're going to move into a time of response and uh, share communion in a moment. Let me pray. Father, we, we thank you that you have given us this incredible book through such a flawed man. When we look at the life of Solomon, we look at a guy who was tremendously gifted and tremendously broken. We see a guy that, that had tremendous insight and accomplished tremendous things, but also suffered tremendously at the hands of his own foolishness. And yet, Lord, one of the great revelations, I believe, for us in this is that you gave Solomon a gift that enabled him to return again and again and again to the fact that he was just simple, ignorant, with a tendency toward foolishness, but the ability to respond to grace. Lord, may we be a people who are simple not knowing the things we need to know, not doing the things we need to do, but humble enough to admit it and to change. Humble enough to be loved that we might grow in love. Humble enough to acknowledge that we are not fostering the fear of the Lord. That we are not living our lives as the creature in the light, the glorious light of the Creator. May we be a people growing in humility and growing in wisdom that we might also be a people growing in the experience of the fullness and flourishing of life that wisdom brings. Spirit, you're the only one that can do this in us. And so I just pray, Lord, that you will do this work. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.